Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. If you have a Bible with you, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Judging from the um, emails I'm getting and comments I've heard over the last uh, couple of months, I sense that God is using this study of 1 Peter that we've been in to, to change us as a church. Certainly he's changing me. I almost can't believe how much things inside of me are changing through what I'm, what I'm reading and learning and studying in the book of 1 Peter. If I had to sum it up, this message that's ringing through loud and clear to me, it's this. That Jesus Christ is so glorious that he is worth not only serving, but he is worth suffering for. He is that Glorious. So today you're going to get two for one, okay? Two sermons. And some of you are saying, no, a fate worse than death. (laughs) Two mini sermons, all right? The first from the Apostle Peter to first century followers of Jesus Christ. The second from Pastor Steve to 21st century followers of Jesus Christ who live here in central Ohio, especially those of you who call New Life your church home. The first will be the Word of God, the pure, undiluted, unadulterated words of the living God recorded in 1 Peter. The second, a message from my heart based, I believe, on 1 Peter, and also some of my observations about some things going on in our culture these days that kind of trouble me. And... uh, So I want to talk about that some a little bit later on. You know, suffering is a theme that runs all throughout this letter that we call 1 Peter. And I've alluded to this before. You guys getting a little ring out there? Okay. Maybe if you can turn that down a little bit, Terry. I've alluded to this before, but it bears repeating that back then in the first century, if you lived in the Roman Empire, it cost you something to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There was a price to pay. Sometime in your life, you need to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You ever heard of this book? Has anybody read it? Okay. Fox's Book of Martyrs chronicles many of the stories from that era of people who were persecuted for their faith and many of whom died, uh, laid it all on the line for Jesus Christ. You ever wonder what happened to all of Jesus' disciples? You ever wonder what, you know, how it turned out for them? Well, it's recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs, what historians believe happened to them. According to legend, Doubting Thomas, remember him? Was ministering in India, ministering the gospel of Christ when he was ultimately killed, run through with a spear. We're told that Matthew and Mark both spent their lives preaching the gospel in Egypt, where they were eventually murdered on account of Christ. Simon the Zealot was crucified Bartholomew translated Matthew's gospel into the Indian language, but was later crucified, as was Andrew, the brother of Peter. In fact, it's said that as Andrew was being led to a cross, that he cried this out, O cross, most welcome and longed for, with a willing mind, joyfully and desirously, I come to you, being a student of him who did hang on you, because I have always been your lover and have coveted to embrace you. 
Legend has it that Peter, the writer of the letter that we've been looking at, met his end also by being nailed to a cross, just as Jesus had predicted in John 21. But because Peter felt unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord, history tells us that he was actually crucified upside down at his request. So let's be reminded again that we stand on the shoulders of some very courageous men and women who laid it all down for Jesus Christ. And in our text today, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter is speaking to people who are facing some of that persecution, some of that suffering, insults, slander, rejection. Some were facing the loss of their livelihood, torture, and even threat of death, all because they love Jesus Christ and were committed to spreading his message. And so Peter, in this section we're looking at today, has four words of instruction for his audience. Let's look. Beginning in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, he begins by helping them set their expectations at a proper level. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. (laughs) Don't be shocked, he says. Don't be surprised. Don't think it a strange and unusual occurrence if the people around you reject you or don't want to hear your message or seem offended by your lifestyle. Don't be surprised if the government starts to infringe on your freedoms and take away your rights and increasingly oppresses you. Expect it. Expect to suffer for Jesus Christ, he says. After all, Jesus predicted that, didn't he? He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. In John 15, he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Paul predicted this would happen. He wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12 this, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And of course, Peter himself, earlier in this letter, predicted suffering was coming. So they predicted it. It's a cost of discipleship. Jesus stated in Luke 9, Be willing to take up your cross. In Philippians 1, Paul wrote, Not only have you been called to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for him. So Peter says, don't be surprised, expect it, train your mind to expect persecution. And if that weren't jarring enough, check out this next verse, verse 13. But rejoice, (laughs) rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are, what? Blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. What's he saying? It's almost unthinkable to our way of thinking, isn't it? You are so blessed if you are suffering for Jesus Christ, he's saying. You should rejoice in that privilege. Not only expect suffering, but second, rejoice in suffering. He says, if you do, you're blessed. And I see two blessings here. First is the blessing of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This is the unique sense of God's presence and power promised to suffering believers. And you read the stories of some of those who suffered for his sake. And 
you hear again this, this theme of, of God's presence being with them. Like Daniel and his comrades when they were suffering and others. This term rests on you. John MacArthur says it speaks of the refreshment of the Holy Spirit in the sense that he comes to take over for us as the dominant power in our lives in the midst of our suffering. The blessing of his presence and power and second, the blessing of overflowing joy in the future. He says, rejoice in your suffering so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. When Jesus comes back. When Christ returns in his glory, those who suffered for him will realize that he was worth every ounce of pain they endured for him. And they'll be overjoyed. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but the Bible is big on something called delayed gratification. You know what that is? Say that with me. Delayed gratification. Now, in our culture, we're all about instant gratification. But the Bible talks a lot about suffering now and glory later. You say, where? Well, Romans 8, verse 18. Read it with me. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you see it? Suffering for Christ now, future glory, no comparison. Read 2 Corinthians 4 with me. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, outweighs our current troubles. He said, put them in the balance. Present sufferings, future glory, there's no comparison. You'll be glad on that day that you suffered on this day. And, of course, Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 11, basically said the same thing. Read this with me. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And that's what Peter is saying here. If you have God's eternal perspective on life, you can actually rejoice in your sufferings now because of what you know about the future. What's going to happen then? Expect suffering. Rejoice in it. That's his message to those first century suffering saints. And here's his third piece of instruction. Very interesting. He says, discern the reason for your suffering. If you find yourself in a situation where you are suffering, ask why. Notice verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler... It's an interesting word. It's only used here in the whole New Testament. The idea is an agitator, a disruptor, somebody who's stirring things up. Don't, it shouldn't, if you're suffering, it shouldn't be as a murderer, thief, or a criminal, or even as a meddler, an agitator. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. What's he saying here? He's basically saying, look, if you find yourself suffering, ask yourself, why? Am I suffering as a criminal or as a Christian? In other words, if you're thrown in jail because you were caught committing a crime by violating the moral code of a civilized society, like murdering somebody or stealing or committing some other crime or being an agitator, stirring up things, 
don't live under the false notion that you're suffering for Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't go around, you know, saying, oh, I'm just suffering for Jesus. No, he's saying that you're just getting your just due under the law. You're a criminal. You're suffering as a criminal. But if your crime was simply that of being a Christian, if it's your Christianity that brought on persecution, got you into trouble, if it's the fact that you're a Christian that results in people making fun of you or ridiculing you or slandering you, or if that's what got you thrown in jail, then he said, rejoice in that. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Rejoice in it. Praise God that you bear that name. Because that glorifies God by showing the world that he is a God worth suffering for. It says, if you suffer as a Christian. It's interesting, this is one of only three places in the New Testament you find the word Christian. Now, we would think you'd be all through there, right? Only three times. Here, and then twice in the book of Acts. The word Christian literally means little Christ. And historians believe that it was initially used as a term of contempt or mockery that unbelievers applied to believers in Christ. Oh, there's one of those Christians, little Christs. But what happened is that believers came to wear that as a badge of honor. Yes, Christian. We want to be like Christ. We want to live for Jesus Christ and be his representatives, his, his ambassadors. I'll wear that proudly, they said. Now, in our day, I think that term has gotten so watered down to mean almost nothing. It's like anybody can say, I'm, you know, regardless of their lifestyle, their belief system, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And so that's why I prefer the term follower of Jesus or Christ follower because the term has just gotten so diluted. So... You get the idea here? Peter is telling these first century saints who are suffering to evaluate their situation, to discern the reason for their suffering, and if their suffering was indeed for the sake of Christ or because of Christ, to rejoice in that. Not be ashamed. Now, then there's a little section here that I can't spend much time on but to say this. In God's plan, He uses hardship and suffering to purge and purify his people. You know this, right? This is like all through the Bible. To purify his people for his holy purposes. And we need to remember that. Now, I'm going to give you a big thought, like a big transcendent, big picture thought. Try to wrap your mind around it. God's intent during this era, we call the church age, is to gather together a beautiful bride for his son. An unblemished, pure, virgin bride without spot and without wrinkle, Paul writes in Ephesians. And one glorious day, the father will present that spotless bride to the son. You've heard of this, right? The bride of Christ. We who believe in Jesus Christ are collectively the bride of Christ, will one day be presented to the Son of God to be his eternal companion, and he wants a pure bride. Nothing less will do. And get this, if in his eternal purposes, 
God is willing to bring, bring pain and hardship and even suffering into the lives of his people to purify them, you can only imagine the severe judgment that awaits all of those who refuse and reject Christ. That's what Peter's saying in verse 17. For it is time... For judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Get the idea? Now, the term judgment here, it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. It's not talking about condemnation. We know there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in in Christ Jesus. But it's talking about the corrective, chastening work of God that I just mentioned, that purging work of God through which he is purifying his church to become that pure, spotless bride for his son. So Peter says, look, if you're, if you're suffering right now, view your suffering as part of God's purifying work in your life. I think he would say, remember, if you think it's hard for you now, and sometimes we think that, don't we? Oh, my life's so hard. I think Peter would say, if you think it's hard for you now, just think about how unbelievers will fare at the final judgment at the great white throne. No comparison. Better to suffer a little now for Christ than to suffer unimaginably then. That's what he's saying. Now, Peter's final instruction to those Believers is reminiscent of how Jesus Christ himself responded when he was hanging on the cross and suffering. Notice what he says, verse 19, he finishes out this section. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is what he's saying. Respond with faith in the midst of suffering. I love the word commit here. He said, if you're suffering, commit yourself to God. It's a banking term. Literally, place on deposit for safekeeping. Just deposit yourself in the hands of your faithful creator. That's the idea. And trust your fate to him. That's what Jesus did when he was hanging on the cross and suffering. Do you remember? And he called out, Father, into your hands I commit. Same word. My spirit, I deposit for safekeeping my spirit with you, God. Peter says, if you're suffering, entrust your soul to God. Listen, if God is big enough for you to trust with your eternal destiny, then he is big enough for you to trust with your present persecution and suffering. And then the last thing he says is continue to do good. See it? Just keep doing good. In fact, you could sum up everything Peter has said in this whole letter with that little phrase, do good. Just keep doing, he says, what you're doing, even if it keeps costing you. Continue to live a holy, set-apart, countercultural lifestyle. Don't regress. Don't go back to the old life like we talked about last week. Say goodbye to that forever. Don't deny Christ. Don't recant your faith. Keep telling people the reason for the hope that you have in you. Keep living in submission to authority. Keep praying, keep loving, keep serving, keep doing good. And entrust your fate. Deposit your case into the hands of your faithful creator. 
So that was Peter's message to those first century Christians who were being persecuted and suffering for their faith. Rejoice in the privilege of suffering for his name's sake. Expect it. Rejoice in it. Discern the cause of it and respond with faith. Now I have a second message. This one's for you. It's a message based on what we just read and on some of my observations about something going on in our culture. It's got three parts. First, based on Peter's words, I would challenge us, let's prepare ourselves to pay a price for following Jesus. Persecution is coming. Do you know that? It's coming. (laughs) It is coming, and it's going to become harder to live for Jesus as we approach the end of the end times. It's going to become harder, not easier, harder. And it's going to be revealed who the true followers of Jesus are. We need to prepare ourselves, as he said in chapter 1, to gird up the loins of our mind, to, to take up all those loose flowing thoughts and discipline and prepare our minds for what's coming. Some people want to you know, fend off and stave off persecution. I'm not sure that's supposed to be our focus. Prepare ourselves to suffer for Jesus. Second, accept hardship as God's purifying correction. And we talked about this. Of course, this is not our default mode, is it? Instead of accepting hardship, we like to do what? Whine and complain. <laughs> oh, man! Why does everything have to be so hard all the time? Why can't it be easy to be a Christian? And yet God says, look, part of my plan in morphing you and shaping you and molding you into the image of my son is to allow and sometimes, yes, bring hardship, persecution, suffering. And number three, don't allow yourself to be seduced by the appealing but lopsided message of the popular prosperity preachers. When I use terms like the health and wealth gospel or prosperity theology, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, If I could encapsulate it in a phrase, it's it's this. Here's, Here's the message. God deeply wants you and is committed to you becoming wealthy and healthy. A truncated version is God exists to help you achieve the American dream. The health and wealth gospel. It is rampant in our culture. You turn on the television. Eight times out of ten, this is what you're going to hear. I want to talk a little bit today about the prosperity gospel and I feel like I should give some disclaimers first and some explanations. First, I love you. I really do. <laughs> Remember that in a few moments. If I sting you, if I say something that stings you. Remember, I love you. I mean, next to my Lord and my family, you are my delight, people of new life. I love the whole body of Christ. In all of its diversity, it's like a kaleidoscope. It's beautiful. I love all the body of Christ. I, I am hoping to travel more abroad, to see more of it. 
I don't believe everyone should look like us. I don't believe we should look like everyone else. I'm not pressing for cookie-cutter Christianity here. I don't believe that all proponents of the prosperity gospel are evil people. I don't. Misguided? Yes. Seduced? Yes. But many of them, I imagine, love God, truly love God in their hearts and truly want to help people. Now, there might be some who are deliberate deceivers and phonies and imposters, and I don't know their hearts, so I'll let God sort all that out. It's their message I take issue with. I also should say that I realize that there are degrees here, okay? I don't put Ernest Angley and Joel Osteen in the exact same category. Some are further down this road than others. In my mind, there's folks who are slightly misguided, and there's outrageous violators and everything in between. Nor would I be so foolish as to claim that there isn't a shred of truth in in anything these guys say. No, there's lots of truth in there. There's lots of Jesus talk. That's what makes it so insidious. It's truth mixed in with error, and you have to sort through it and figure out what's what. So some of you might not like me much after this. You'll stop carrying pictures of me on your iPhone or your BlackBerry. (laughs) Delete, delete that guy. And I want you to know I'm okay with that if I get you thinking. If I get you to start thinking about being discerning as to the messages that you're receiving, if I can help give you a grid through which to filter those messages and evaluate them. I don't think we're just supposed to accept wholesale everything we hear. I want to give you 10 reasons why I'm not a fan of prosperity preachers and why I'm growing to actually hate the prosperity gospel. Number one, it reduces and diminishes God. You listen to some of these guys and and gals, and you kind of get the idea that that because we're the king's kids, we can order the king around. Like we can tell him what to, you know, do this for me and command money, you know, come to you. In, In my mind, this is an inverted hierarchy of authority. It's like, wait a second. We're not to be ordering him around. Let's get the, let's get this chain of command right. God is the master. We're the servants. God is the father. We're the sons and daughters. Don't fall for this inverted upside down theology that places man over God. It reduces and diminishes God. Second, it's based on a man-centered system of theology. Let me ask you a question. Does God exist for man or does man exist for God? Which is true, A or B? Yeah, we exist for him, for his glory, for the praise of his glory. God does not exist to help you and I achieve the American dream. You won't find that in the Bible. Sometimes I get the idea from these these preachers that, that, you know, Jesus is a means to an end. Like, Get Jesus in your life, and then you'll drive a Lexus, you know. And if he doesn't work, you know, what do you do? Try multi-level marketing. Try something else. Friends, this is man-centered thinking. Do, Do we understand this? 
There are two theological truths that all of us would do well to meditate on and ponder, and they are this. Number one, our God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they live together in perfect community. And second, our triune God is God-centered. He does everything he does for the praise of his glory. See, we're okay with being God-centered as long as we think God is man-centered, right? But he's not. Prosperity theology is a man-centered system. Number three, it feeds the rampant consumerism of Western Christianity. Hey, you can have whatever you want and God will help you get it. Number four, this was a new thought to me. Prosperity theology, the health and wealth gospel, offers unredeemed people something they already crave. I was reading John Piper this week, which is dangerous, and here's what he wrote. When you appeal to people to come to Christ on the basis of what they already want, what unregenerate people already want, then 1 Corinthians 2 makes no sense. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, Paul wrote. They are foolishness to him. Therefore, follow this now, if you offer to people what they do not consider foolishness in the natural man, you're not preaching the gospel. And the prosperity gospel offers to people what they desperately want as fallen, unregenerate people, and it gives it to them, and it grows huge churches, and we export it to Africa and the Philippines flying in with our jets, bilking them of their money, and coming back to our condos worth $3 million. It is horrific, he writes, what we export as Americans. I hate the prosperity gospel because I love the glory of God. Amen. Number five, it's contaminating other countries' view of God and Christianity. I have friends who are Africans. I have friends who've ministered in Africa, and they all say the same thing. In, in the mind of the African person, the United States and Christianity and Jesus and prosperity are all intermingled. And yeah, we'd love to have your Jesus because of how prosperous he's making you. Number seven, it's sadly, no, number six, it's based on faulty hermeneutics. And you didn't even know that was a word. <laughs> Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting Scripture. And I listen to these, these guys at times, and I, I, I want to talk to the TV screen. You ever do that? It's like, are you sure you can do that with the Bible? Are, are you sure you can take every promise of God given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and apply it to every single New Testament, New Covenant believer in Jesus? Are you sure? Are you sure you can open your Bible and pluck out a verse and twist it and warp it and make it mean what you want it to mean? Are you sure that you're rightly dividing the word of truth? Number seven, seven reason, seventh reason I despise the prosperity gospel is that it is sadly mistaken about God's ultimate purposes. Let me ask you, is God more concerned about your happiness or your holiness? Which? No question. And, and won't he oftentimes sacrifice your happiness for the sake of your holiness? Isn't that what Job was all about? 
You see, the prosperity gospel says it's all about us being happy and successful and healthy and wealthy and all of that. And I'm not seeing it in the pages of Scripture. Number eight, it ignores clear New Testament teaching on the value of trials and suffering and pain. I always want to say, where are the sermons on 1 Peter? I haven't heard one from you guys. Or 2 Corinthians or James or Job. Where are the the sermons on the value of pain and suffering in the life of the believer? Now, I believe in living in victory and being an overcomer. You know that. It's in the Bible. But that doesn't mean guaranteed immunity from disease or poverty or pain in this life. I believe that living in victory means living in victory over sin and self and pride. And God often uses pain and suffering as his instruments to get us there. I believe that being an overcomer means living in over... being a, in, What am I trying to say? <laughs> living in victory over death and hell and Satan by virtue of our redemption and our promised resurrection and eternal life with God forever. That's why we can live as overcomers in this life, not based on some twisted, warped view of what God's going to do for us. Number nine, it produces disillusionment with God. I, I have friends disappointed. Well, that makes sense. If you've been taught that God exists to make you happy, successful, healthy, and wealthy, and you experience something other than that, of course you'll get disillusioned with God. You might even get mad at him, turn away from him, curse him, or even stop believing that he exists. And that is fine because that wasn't the true God of the Bible anyway. That was a false image of God that got implanted in your mind. Now, we've all been disappointed with God, haven't we, at times? You know, our expectations were here. And, but think about, just think about that phrase for a moment, disappointed with God. Us being disappointed with God. Actually, when you think about it, it kind of sounds foolish, doesn't it? Like maybe God should be disappointed in us. Disappointed with God? The God? The real God does love you very, very much. Hear me. But he is more committed because he loves you to your holiness than he is to making life easy for you and me. Number 10, it's contrary. The health and wealth gospel is contrary to the life and teachings of Jesus. I read an interesting quote from a pastor named Mark Driscoll recently. He asked this question, how can any teaching say, if you only have more faith, then you'll be less like Jesus? Think about that. Jesus lived a simple life, not a lavish one. His teaching was more about internal stuff than external stuff. He talked a lot about denying yourself and taking up your cross and giving your money away. He taught that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he lived that way. He talked about laying up treasure in heaven rather than treasure on earth. He preached a whole lot about eternal rewards. Personally, I think Jesus himself might be very uncomfortable sitting in a crusade or a gathering where the prosperity gospel was being preached. 
I can just see him raising his eyebrows going, excuse me? <laughs> That's not what I said. Now, let me counterbalance this a little bit. I do believe that God blesses people with wealth as he chooses. Abraham was a wealthy man. Solomon was a wealthy man. There are people all throughout Scripture that God blessed with wealth. I don't think it's evil to be wealthy. I don't think that God has obligated himself to do that or guarantee that for every one of his people. I think we do need to work hard to earn an income and seek a good return and be good stewards, especially as we're responsible for other people. And in our Brothers Keeper Church, we're learning more and more about this. We're to be good stewards, yes. And God does bless us with nice things, doesn't he? I mean, I'm driving into church this morning, and the sun's out, and, you know, it's a beautiful day. I get to be with you all, and, you know, I have a beautiful wife, and my kids are doing well. All my cars are running right now well. Praise God. The planets are all in alignment or something, and everything's, you know, I'm just saying, praise God. Thank you, God. I, I'm grateful for the gifts that you've given me, but never let me be so enamored with the gifts that I forget about the giver. Because you see, when you have Jesus, you have prosperity. You get this? I mean, when you have Jesus Christ, you are immensely prosperous. You have all that you need in Jesus Christ. He gives us good gifts, yes. He lets us have nice things. But it's from Him. It's for Him. It belongs to Him. And He wants us to use it to honor Him. So while I love the provision of God and believe that health and wealth can be a wonderful blessing from God, I hope you hear me saying that, I don't believe that part of our inheritance in the gospel is this guaranteed financial prosperity and physical health. I actually believe that that's a lie. Maybe it's time, as Peter says, for judgment to begin in the family of God. Maybe it's time for the people of God to repent. There's a good Bible word. The word repent means to change your mind. Could it be that the people of God have a view of God that is too small? And that we need to repent. This is part of what God's doing in me through 1 Peter. Steve, your God is too small. You have no idea how glorious I am. A.W. Tozer said, What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It will affect how you live your life. Maybe we need to repent. You say, well, how would I know that? Well, if you think that God exists to serve you and make you happy and help you achieve the American dream, your God is too small. If we find ourselves chronically disappointed with God because he doesn't do what we want him to do, our God is too small. If we value ease and comfort and pleasure over being closer to God, our God is too small. We're not seeing him accurately. If we sacrifice for other things or other people but not for God, our God's too small. If coming and worshiping God with the people of God seems like a chore to you or boring or a duty, you're not seeing him for who he really is. 
if giving back to him seems like a bad deal. If things like getting baptized, and we have a few folks getting baptized this morning, or serving him in a ministry seems inconvenient or too hard, your God's too small. Some of you have never been baptized. You've placed your faith in Christ. You've repented of your sins. You've come to him. You've never been baptized. There's some reason you're unwilling to go in the tank. But you know what? I think if you saw Jesus for who he really was, you'd, you'd say, let me dunk me, please. Once, twice. I'll can them all in there. You know? Jesus is that worthy. He's that glorious. Just tell me what he wants me to do and I'll do it. He's the precious treasure worth any price to obtain. When we're more enamored with NCAA basketball or such and such a restaurant or the latest sale at Macy's than we are with Jesus Christ, then our God is too, too small, too tiny. And if we think that Jesus Christ is not worth suffering for, we need to repent. I'll close with one of the most inspiring stories I've ever heard. It gives me goosebumps every time I have read it or heard it. Happened about 1,700 years ago. The account is recorded in a book, kind of the modern-day version of Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's called Jesus Freaks by DC Talk. The story of the thundering Roman legion took place in Turkey under Emperor Licinius in 320 A.D. Forty sold out followers of Jesus Christ facing persecution for their beliefs at the hands of the Roman governor. Here's the account. The Roman governor stood resolutely before those 40 Roman soldiers of the thundering legion. I command you to make an offering to the Roman gods, he said, and if you will not, you will be stripped of your military status. The 40 soldiers all believed firmly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they knew that they must not deny him or sacrifice to the Roman idols, no matter what the governor would do to them. One of them, named Camdidus, spoke up on behalf of the whole legion. Nothing is dearer or of greater honor to us than Jesus Christ, our God. The governor then tried other tactics to get them to deny their faith. First, he offered them money and imperial honors. Then he threatened them with torments and torture, with the rack and with fire. But again, Camdidus replied, you offer us money that remains behind and glory that fades away. You seek to make us friends of the emperor, but alienate us from the true king. We desire only one gift, the crown of righteousness. We are anxious for only one glory, the glory of the heavenly kingdom. We love honors, but only those of heaven. You threaten fearful torments and call our godliness a crime, but you will not find us faint-hearted or attached to this life or easily stricken with terror for the love of God, we are prepared to endure any kind of torture. Well, as you can imagine, that enraged the governor even more. Now he wanted them to die slow, painful deaths. So he had them stripped naked, and he herded them, these 40 men, all out to the middle of a frozen lake. Then he set soldiers around the perimeter to guard them, to prevent any of them from coming to shore and escaping. Forty naked men shivering on the ice, started to encourage each other as though they were going to battle. How many of our companions in arms fell on the battlefront showing themselves loyal to an earthly king? Is it possible for us to fail to sacrifice our lives in faithfulness to the true king? Let us not turn aside, O warriors. 
Let us not turn our backs in flight from the devil. They spent the entire night courageously bearing their pain and rejoicing in the hope of soon being with their Lord. And the next morning, they could be heard, even from the shoreline, chanting, Forty men, yes, forty, devoted servants of Christ our King, we will not fear what man can do. To Jesus we will cling. Well, that enraged the officials even more. To increase the torment of those Christians, baths of hot, steaming water were put around the lake. With these, the governor hoped to weaken the firm resolve of the freezing men. He told them, You may come ashore when you're ready to deny your faith. And in the end, end, one of them did weaken, and his knees buckled, and he came off the ice and got into the warm bath. And so the chant went up again, 39 men, yes, 39 devoted servants of Christ our King. There was a guard on the shoreline who saw the one man defecting and coming and getting in the hot bath, and he heard this. And he couldn't stand it any longer. And he surprised everybody with the suddenness of his conversion. He threw off his clothes and he ran out to join the naked men on the frozen ice, crying out loudly, I am a Christian! I am a Christian! And the chant went up, 40 men! Yes, 40 devoted servants of Christ our King. We will not fear what men can do. To Jesus we will cling. Jesus is so glorious that he's not only worth serving, he is worth suffering for. Would you bow your heads? You know, we don't do like high-pressure altar calls around here. But I do sense that today and all this weekend that Some of us need an opportunity to get out of our seat and come and kneel or stand and just tell God, I repent. My view of you has been too small. I've not considered you worthy to suffer for. And I'm seeing that now. The Spirit of God is opening my eyes to this. I change my mind about you, Jesus. Is there anybody who needs to do that this morning? Would you lift your hands and just say, Steve, I'm, I think my view of God is too small. I don't think it's accurate. My hand's up. I would invite you right now, if um, the Spirit of God's speaking to you, to respond to that, to come join me at the front right now. And just really cry out to God and say, God, I am, I am so sorry. My, my view of you has been warped. It's not accurate. You're more than I thought. You're more than I thought. I'm asking you to change my mind about you. Give me your grace to repent about how I think about you. Anybody else? there's more than four people in this room who need to repent. 
of thinking too small about God.